Hello, Michael Pollitt. So I want to thank you first for accepting to be part of this little chat about the um, afternoon session of Tuesday, 8 June on energy transition and local governance that was presided by you. And you are an economist from the University of Cambridge. And in this session, we had a quite diverse uh, panel that one of them from the could be categorized that one of them is from world of practice and three other are more from academia. But uh, we had um, Marianne Lenyot, which is president or CEO of Enedis, and Matt, Professor Matthew Kahn, which from South Carolina University, and also Professor Anna Alberini from University of Maryland, and finally, Professor Mikhail Karamanis uh, from Boston University. Uh, during this panel, we also um, the intervention could be categorized as uh, first from uh, Enedis, that was a view. Uh, from the biggest DSO in France and in Europe about uh, their strategy for the energy transition. Then from Matthew and Anna, we had, they presented kind of two um, issue or challenges for the energy transition being a local opposition to energy transition in the US. And from Anna was the use of fuel subsidies and how they can uh, prevent market signal to reach um, the, part, uh, the consumers. And finally, Karamanis presented his view on the distribution locational marginal uh, uh, tariff, so a uh, cost. So uh, let's start with the first presentation from Marianne Lenyo. Uh, which, what, what were your main uh, takes from this presentation they, about their strategy to uh, tackle the energy transition? They, talked about also engaging consumer, about distribution tariff, how to better design them. And she also invited economists to come up with the best uh, uh, example or strategy to um, design them. So and as you are an economist, uh, Michael, what are your uh, thoughts from this uh, intervention? Um, well, I thought, it, I thought it was a very interesting um, statement of uh, what uh, Enedis were up to. Um, I, I did think it was interesting what uh, Marianne didn't say, um, uh, which was that she wasn't advocating for things that economists have talked about with respect to um, to distribution tariffs. She wasn't talking about locational marginal pricing. She wasn't talking about the use of um, local energy markets to procure um uh services such as constraint management or reactive power um and she she really wasn't talking about the use of uh of economic instruments at all in the distribution system so i i actually i find that somewhat surprising i mean it's surprising because as we know france has always been an innovator in terms of uh, the use of marginal pricing in electricity and so it was a, it was it, it it was interesting to see that Enedis certainly wasn't thinking that um, the use of highly differentiated tariffs was uh, part of the solution, or even that the use of market mechanisms in specific parts of the network um, appeared to be part of their solution. So um, I, I think as an economist, I would have wanted to push her on, was she really saying that? that actually Enidus hadn't done much thinking about this or hadn't made much progress with it? Um, uh, or were there actually things happening within her network that were the effective use of economic incentives? Certainly things that we've seen in Great Britain, we've seen lots of innovation around what the distribution 
network operators are doing. They have been making use of competitive procurement uh, mechanisms to procure constraint management services deep within the distribution system. They're experimenting with reactive power uh, markets to manage local voltage issues. So I, you know, I think as the largest uh, DSO in Europe, I, 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 I would have wanted to see more um, progress and more innovation from uh, Enedis in this front. Uh, thank you, Michael. I think they I, they have presented other in the, this conference some of their plans for some explicit schemes of uh, market-based procurement of flexibility, but um, that was uh, not in in this session. And um, let me jump to the maybe two two next uh, two following uh, presentation from Matthew and Anna. Well, Matthew, he kind of brought this issue of NIMBY in the US and how sometimes the local legislation could be uh, could slow down the energy transition because some consumer would not agree on having a windmill or wind turbine in their neighborhood or also transmission lines. And um, from Anna, she mentioned the fuel subsidies that could uh, be a harder also for energy transition. So how, what, what are your view on these two uh, challenges or issue for energy transition? Okay, well, um, I mean, Matthew is raising a very common issue across uh, the world when it comes to the energy transition, um, which is uh, that citizens express inconsistent preferences. Um, so, uh, you know, at one level, citizens say they want global uh, environmental externalities and even national environmental externalities to be addressed. Um, and in another level, when it comes to do you want a wind turbine near your house uh, to help address those sorts of externalities, um, people uh, sort of take a different view. And of course, it's not necessarily the same people um, who, are, who are being inconsistent, um, but there is inconsistency in the political process. And clearly, all political processes need to deal with that. Um, and, uh, you know, part of dealing with it is um, making sure that the planning laws are fit for purpose. Um, of course, many countries have more centralized planning um, processes than, than the US, for instance, um, so that critical national infrastructure, um, you know, would trump local planning object, object, uh, objections on in certain circumstances. Um, but also, you know, if, um, uh, citizens express these sorts of local preferences, we've got to have a way of uh, valuing them um, because they legitimately do have a value and putting that in our uh, economic modelling to say, well, are we willing to move the wind turbine offshore or to move the transmission line underground or reroute it um, around um, a sensitive uh, local environment, you know, so so there are good processes for doing that. And there's plenty of evidence that uh, at, even at the national level, um, citizens are willing to pay to avoid some of these very contentious local environmental impacts. And I suppose the other thing that we need to bear in mind is that we shouldn't be addicted to localism. You know, that uh, some people think that the solution to the energy 
transition is that we've got to have lots of local power plants and local energy assets. That is not entirely clear. I mean, yes, these things can be helpful. Um, and, you know, it's helpful if we can generate more energy locally and we can reduce um, long distance transmission costs. Um, but it's not actually wholly necessary. Um, you know, we are still going to need a bulk transmission system. We are still going to need large concentrations of energy production. Um, we're going to need big offshore wind uh, farms. We're going to need, you know, big hydrogen plants or or whatever. Um, so, you know, the fact that you can't build um, the odd wind turbine here or there is is not, you know, absolutely critical to delivering uh, net zero. But clearly, the more worrying thing is that if if we allow somebody to object to everything, um, then you clearly can't deliver net zero. And so we've got to have a way of, in a sense, um, you know, not allowing individual local objections, which may be um, actually not reflective of what the general population want to trump what uh, the, the, the general population want to happen on the environment. Thank you, Michael. And uh, yeah, on the topic of subsidies, um, I don't know, it was uh, the presentation was mainly applied to Ukraine, but uh, worldwide or in Europe, do you think, uh, I mean, it's always a politically sensible topic to remove subsidies, uh, right? And um, we have or, or also to increase market signal for decarbonization. And we have seen like what could happen with the yellow vests in France and whether we could see similar um, uh, reaction from the Green Deal objective if they may uh, lead to certain harm in the pocket of the, most, of the poorest uh, parts of the population or the, the ones that are at risk of energy poverty. Um, do you have any comments on that? Well, I mean, the, the example that Anna gave of the Ukraine was actually a fascinating one. Um, because she was talking about a 700% rise in the price of energy. Um, and, uh, you know, and the fact that did happen shows that, you know, in extreme circumstances, large rises in the price are possible. Um, and that, though, you know, it did cause a significant rise in the subsidy costs. Um, but it, it can happen. Now, of course, um, she didn't exactly explain why it happened. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily a very comfortable thing for the people involved or the political circumstances aren't necessarily ones that governments would want to replicate in other countries. But it's important to say that historically there have been very large rises in prices. Now, it's usually good if you can blame them on external forces. Um um, uh, because of, obviously that is always politically convenient for domestic politicians to be able to do that. Um, but some rises in prices, certainly over time, are going to be necessary, certainly in the unit price of energy. You know, it cannot be the case that um, as we move away from fossil fuels, as we price carbon, as we move to higher cost alternative fuels, um, that the unit price of energy 
is going to go down. It's going to go up. Now, the bill that people pay may may not go up as much because energy efficiency is an absolutely critical part of um, the energy transition. Um, but even then, it's not clear that you can you can fully mitigate rises in the total cost. Um, so at that point, you need to again appeal to what is it that citizens want? Citizens need to understand that the energy transition is expensive. And if they vote for the energy transition, they are voting to put up total energy costs and that most people will have to pay for that. You know, we can, you know, we can exempt some people through subsidy regimes, um, but we can't exempt most people. Um, you know, the middle classes will have to pay in some sense. Um, and we simply just need to be honest about that and have good uh, subsidy regimes to protect the poor. Now, Anna gave a really nice example of you know, Ukraine being a country where the subsidy cost had actually risen to two and a half percent of GDP. So it's, you know, this is a really expensive fuel subsidy that she was talking about. Now, at that point, when you're a country that is spent is actually spending a huge amount of money on fuel subsidies, of course, then the question is, actually, is there a way of better spending that money to get more value for society? And, and Anna discussed that, you know, once you're spending two and a half percent of GDP, it becomes worth not just giving people the money, but actually saying, no, I'm going to insulate your house. I'm going to give you a better boiler. I'm going to make some physical interventions in your property to reduce the actual fuel consumption. And one could think of very smart ways of doing that. Um, you know, one, one of the problems that we have in um, advanced countries where people are paying the full cost of energy is when, when, we, when we come along with energy efficiency measures, people, lots of people don't want them. You know, they don't want the inconvenience of um, changing the, you know, anything to do with their house, even though it might save them money in the long run. Um, but of course, when people are poor, and this is a really significant subsidy, you, you've got more options there and people are more willing to accept the intervention. They've got more at stake and one can um, really try to increase the participation rates in energy efficiency schemes. Um, so, uh, so for countries that have got very high uh, fuel subsidies as a percentage of GDP, there must be more intelligent ways of spending that money in order to reduce the total energy bill for society. And thank you, Michael. I think it, it would be always, or the most critical problem here is to target the right people after removing subsidies, which is I mean, not that straightforward and how to categorize them also. But yeah, it also depends pretty much in the case or in the study case. So let us jump to the last topic of this session, which was I think one of the most debated in the um, uh, Q&A session afterwards, which was on distribution, location, and marginal pricing that was presented. The topic was presented by Michael Karamanis. And yeah, he it, it seems to be at least theoretically that is one of the way or the most optimal way for the future for the future of distribution grid in order to have the demand side following the supply side and to have uh, time and locational granularity that would also allow 
to uh, uh, reflect the cost of the, for instance, deterioration of transformer and distribution network. And um, yeah, we also have seen that in the uh, in the chart that it may not be very um, it may not be very applicable at least in the practice and could have been could be not acceptable to price people differently in the distribution uh, grid. So yeah, let, what uh, what what are your main takeaways from the discussion on this on distribution locational marginal pricing? Okay. Well, I thought. I mean, I thought the the contrast was very interesting, wasn't it? Between between Michael, who was advocating for this, um, you know, the highly distributed um, tarification of the distribution system in order to reflect um, local costs, and uh, the response from Enidus to this when we when we discussed it in the questioning, and and Christoph saying, well, you know, we thought about it, but it's not clear that people want it, you know, so. Um, and uh, you know we we have to take. He, I mean, I, what I took him to be saying was, look, we have to take political reality into account. And local municipalities don't necessarily want um, this thing to be implemented in their area. And I think, you know, my experience from the research I've done across the world is lots of distribution companies have have thought about making more use of locational pricing within their distribution system almost none have done it explicitly you know so of course there's nothing to stop you as a distribution company using shadow prices um in order to manage your own network okay you know we i would expect them to do that you know so if you run a network knowing what your locational costs are would seem to be important so what michael didn't discuss is isn't there a difference between actually making use of these um, shadow prices um, and exposing consumers to them? That's a completely different thing. Okay. Um, and in you know, my response to that in general is that in most networks, we don't expose consumers to locational pricing for a very, very good reason that. You know, it's up to the distribution network to manage its locational costs. It's not up to consumers to be responding to the fact that because something has happened somewhere else in the network, suddenly the costs have gone up in your part of the network. You know, explaining that as a retail offer to a customer is near impossible. You know, sorry, that's not what I'm paying you for. You know, I want to pay a single fixed amount for my service and you worry about the uh, location, the underlying locational costs. So, you know, so there's a real retail problem here, not, not just, a, and that's not just a political problem. You know, what we've seen across network industries is people are, are prepared to pay for new services separately, but they're not prepared to have complicated tariffs around the same service. So, um, so you really, you know, I, I I think the the people who advocate more use of uh, you know distribution um, locational tariffs need to articulate you know what's the retail offer here, um, and you know I I I mean one has also got technical questions about it as well. I mean the you know the sort of technical questions are these are entirely 
constructed tariffs. You know, so they 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 depend on network condition. They depend on how you model the network. They depend on you know have you modeled everything, which you almost certainly haven't. Okay, you, you know you're you may be modeling marginal energy losses, but are you mod, mod, uh, measuring everything else, uh, all other costs that are on the on the network? And you would need to convince me that you were doing that properly. You know, I mean, most um, of the costs of distribution system are largely fixed, and it's mostly a cost allocation issue. You know, I could I could allocate all of the costs of the network to this group of customers, or I could a- allocate all the costs to that group of customers. There's lots of fixed costs to be moved around the network. Um, so, you know, I, I I think there's no doubt there is some value to. Um, taking these shadow prices and making some use of them in network management and maybe in targeted procurement of services by the distribution company to reduce its own costs. But exposing the generality of customers to it raises more questions than it answers, I think, at this stage. Thank you, Michael. I think that have been a great overview of the different topics that have been discussed in uh, the plenary session on energy transition and local governance. Um, yeah, I want to also thank you for presiding this session. And um, yeah, let's um, hope best of luck for this uh, remaining days of the conference. Thank you very much. Thanks, Athir. Nice to talk to you today.